Welcome to the Public Health Power Hour podcast, a recording of live conversations with public health experts on the most important global health issues. I'm Steve Hamill, Vice President of Policy Advocacy and Communication at Vital Strategies. We're a global health organization and we're reimagining public health. At Vital Strategies, we believe that public health is everything that surrounds you that makes great health possible. That means clean air and water, access to medicine and quality care, healthy food and places to get exercise, and removing bias and discrimination in healthcare. Here on the Public Health Power Hour, we get together to look at how the world around us shapes our health and how we can shape the environment so that everyone everywhere has the potential for great health. And if you want to join our conversations live, please follow us on Twitter under the handle VitalStrat. Well, good day, everyone, and welcome to the Public Health Power Hour. My name is Dan Cass, and I'm the Senior Vice President for Environmental Health at Vital Strategies, and we're a global public health organization. The Public Health Power Hour is a live discussion show about public health hosted on Twitter spaces, recorded as a podcast, and found on your favorite podcast platform like Apple, Pocket Cast, or Spotify. At Vital Strategies, we're working to reimagine public health, and that means everything that surrounds us, the built and natural environment, policies and culture, all of which make good health possible or conspire to deprive us of it. In the wake of millions of deaths from COVID-19, with economies shattered and too many lives impacted, we now have so much more to do to protect people's health. And we believe that public health can be better and bolder and stronger And this year, we're dedicating the Power Hour to discussions with experts and advocates to think about the how. We're prompting them to help us paint a picture of this future by asking, what if? In today's discussion, we'll be looking into the history and evolution of public health and asking, what if public health fueled social movements? A recent article in The Atlantic by Ed Young entitled, How Public Health Took Part in Its Own Downfall, took a thoughtful look at this topic and partly inspired this discussion. This article has a U.S.-based perspective on public health and social movements, and we acknowledge that the situation may be different elsewhere. Our discussions are guided by our listeners, and we've been taking questions on Twitter all week. We look forward to your feedback, uh, such as ideas for future discussions, feedback on our shows, or questions for future discussions through email. Please don't hesitate to drop us a line at powerhour at vitalstrategies.org. So I'm excited to introduce you to our panelists. And before we get to the main event, we like to warm up by asking each panelist to share a news story that caught their eye recently. I'd like to introduce our three guests for today's discussion and also ask them to share a news article that caught their eye this week. It could be about this topic or not. Let's start with Celine. Celine Gounder is a senior fellow and editor-at-large for Public Health, Kaiser Health News. She's also an infectious disease specialist an epidemiologist at NYU and Bellevue, and she's the host of two podcasts, The Epidemic and American Diagnosis. Welcome, Celine. What article caught your eye this week? So there are really two news stories I want to highlight. One is the passing of Dr. Paul Farmer, who for many of us um, has been a, a mentor. Uh, for me, it was certainly a mentor dating back to the 1990s uh, when I was getting my start in the field of global health and HIV and TB. And there are a couple of lessons I, I want to share um, that you know I think many of us have, have absorbed from working with and, and following his career. One is um, that I think is really relevant to the current moment is that infectious diseases are not the great leveler. Um, I remember having a conversation early in the pandemic with a um, book editor who uh, was encouraging me to write a book about uh, COVID being this great leveler. And it certainly is not. Um, I think very early on when you're still learning, when it's still novel, um, it feels like everybody's at risk. But the reality even early on um, is that we saw uh, certain populations, uh, people of color, uh, low-income groups, uh, and the like, were much higher risk for being exposed, infected, and then having poor outcomes. Uh, secondly, Paul's concept of accompagnateur, or um, to accompany, be someone who accompanies, I think is um, really something that I at least 
try to do um, in, in my work is to really um, be alongside the people that you're serving to understand their experience, um, to uh, really uh, embed yourself in the community and understand the community. Thirdly, this uh, idea of preferential option for the poor, which particularly in this moment, as we're dropping many of the mitigation strategies to be thinking about the most vulnerable and in a sense, providing the preferential option for the most vulnerable in this moment. And that includes with respect to COVID, uh, the elderly people living in uh, nursing homes and other congregate settings, um, communities of color, and then people in certain high-risk populations. We saw that um, people working in meatpacking, uh, food processing, and corrections were also very, very high risk for exposure um, and um, severe disease early in the pandemic. And then finally, um, this concept of structural violence, which in some ways is um, what we're going to be talking about, um, really solutions to structural violence in our conversation today, which is how do our political, economic, and social structures create vulnerabilities where some people are at higher risk uh, for being exposed uh, from suffering from various different um, diseases, conditions. The other um, piece of news I just want to very briefly touch on is um, today uh, Russia's invasion of, of Ukraine. And I think it's really important to highlight that disinformation, also known as propaganda, um, is a tool of war um, and it's used to achieve political um, ends. And I think we should all be very alert to the fact that we are likely to see a lot more disinformation, not just with respect to Ukraine, but any any number of issues in the in the coming weeks and months, and to um, double down on our efforts to really seek out expert um, opinion, advice, uh, input on on whatever the issue is that we're researching. Thank you for that. Um, those are sort of great examples of. Uh, things in the news that both look backwards um, and forwards to uh, role that we can play in public health as both practitioners and uh, as a discipline. Let me turn to uh, Shelley Hearn. Shelley is the director of the Lerner Center for Public Advocacy and the Dean Summer and Clagg Professor of Practice in Public Health Advocacy at Johns Hopkins. Shelley, you may not know this, but I'm overdue by some 15 years in thanking you for shaping my own public health career. When you worked at the Pew Charitable Trust, and the Trust for America's Health, you spearheaded the call for improved environmental public health tracking, which resulted in funding uh, for the U.S. CDC's program, which I helped launch in the early 2000s. So, Shelley, a belated thank you. What interested you this week? Well, Dan, thank you. I, I didn't know that, and I actually think we'll come back round to that example of how you could take a critical issue that was not well understood tie some important facts uh, with it. And, and even though it, uh, public health surveillance is not always the forefront of people's attention, uh, there are ways to bust through the complacency, uh, the, the lack of attention, uh, the misinformation in the world, and actually be able to boost and improve our public health infrastructure. We did it in the past and we can do it again. And let me use that to segue to the, the article that caught my eye it was last night. Uh, the Post put out a, a, an article called Pregnancy-Related Deaths Shot Up During Pandemic's First Year. And this ties uh, to what Celine was, was touching upon. And it's interesting that the header is actually not um, what the lead, lead headline should have been. Uh, my hair is on fire. We all should be with what's going on with the extraordinary health disparities. It's not just what uh, happened in COVID. It is, it is uh, alive and well with enormous uh, differentials in health outcomes in uh, life and death situation between white, black, indigenous people of color. Um, the Post article, uh, it basically captures that, yes, um, Pregnant women, new mothers died at a higher rate in 2020. But that in incredible increase was predominantly black women. And this isn't news to, to us in the public health field. There have been reports going on for decades about this. And it's been actually, rather than improving, it's been increasing every single year 
it just happened to continue also in COVID. This isn't about COVID. It could get confused that it is, but it gets back to this issue of one of the reason that we will be the first country to surpass um, the million deaths uh, related to COVID is because we're one of the least healthy nations. And it's because of uh, extraordinary uh, structural racism that we have in this country, the disparities that we have not addressed, despite there is also a, a great article in STAT um, that captured what the National Academy of Sciences reported 20 years ago on this problem. And I say our hair should be on fire. Um, this is something that we've known. We have not gotten it up to the level of creating the political will to start doing the investments that are needed, the attention and the drive to, to create the change. And I hope that's something uh, I know we're going to roll up our sleeves and talk about a little bit more today. Thank you. Um, you know, I think that's a, a great example that moves us directly into um, our next uh, panelist, Daniel Goldberg, who is a historian. So this idea that we drag the, the history of inequities into every new situation, and until we solve them, uh, it only worsens. Uh, Dan Goldberg is uh, attorney, history of medicine, and a public health ethicist. Daniel's an associate professor at the University of Colorado Center for Bioethics and Humanities. Welcome, Daniel. Uh, what article would you like to share? Uh, thanks, everyone. Thanks so much for having me here on the Power Hour. I really appreciate it. So the article that caught my eye was a Kaiser Health News article. Um, so just touching Celine there a little bit, I guess. Uh, and the article was referring to the raft of current anti-LGBTQIA plus legislation that's making its way across the U.S. Obviously, this is a U.S.-centric article for those of you who are listening from abroad, from elsewhere, non-U.S. listeners who don't know about this. There's a number of states who are basically passing all sorts of laws that are um, um, having sort of a, a serious impact on LGBTQIA plus populations. Texas in particular um, came out with a fairly outrageous um, opinion from the uh, state of, Texas State Attorney General. And I've lived in Texas for 11 years, so I know the state very well. Um, and so I guess the reason I was thinking about that and the reason that these struck me is because in my capacity as a public health law expert, one of the fields, the things that I work on very closely, is something called legal epidemiology, which is the, the scientific study of laws and policies as epidemiologic exposures, right? And so it's kind of been known for a long time that laws and policies have a very powerful effect on health outcomes, uh, but we haven't really studied them using sort of epidemiologic and public health science tools very well until probably about the last 10 to 15 years or so. And so I think, you know, this is really powerful because we talk a lot about structural violence and, you know, one of the major upstream mechanisms through which structural violence, sort of these root fundamental causes like um, racism and sexism and ableism and other kinds of sort of forms of uh, oppression, domination, subordination, one of the ways they get translated into health inequalities and health outcomes is through laws and policies. So laws and policies are actually pretty high upstream in terms of structural determinants of health. And so the, the laws and policies we form or choose not to form will have a huge impact on both the overall health of a population, whether it's the U.S. or not, and the state of health inequalities in the U.S. And of course, you know, the health and the inequitable health specifically of transgender people and gender non-binary people in the U.S. is has absolutely just been devastating. I mean, the inequalities are, are, are just horrifying to witness. These kinds of laws and policies are obviously going to make things worse. And so it's, it's very concerning to see these things happening. Thank you for that. Uh, you know, following on this theme of policy, I, I myself was intrigued by an article this week um, that was in the Journal of Pediatric and Adolescent Gynecology that found that in the United States, it was legislation, that sort of notion of policy being a driver, it was legislation um, that uh, enabled robust emergency contraception access in adolescents was associated with a 14% reduction in adolescent pregnancies compared to states that uh, restricted access, and that adolescent births were 43% higher in states with restrictive policy. So again, this notion of like policies being so paramount. And, and it also bring, brought to mind for me... Uh, a couple of other sort of articles that appeared this week. Um, first, the country of Colombia legalized abortion on demand through 24 weeks of pregnancy. And this step to advance women's opportunities to really exercise their reproductive rights um, and all of the health and social benefits that we know are associated with access to safe abortion 
came following a strong campaign by many women's organizations coordinated in Colombia by the Green Wave Coalition. And it's an example, to my mind, of how social movements aligned with public health advocates and public health data can really influence important public health advances. Um, but, but the second article of the week, um, you know, building on the theme, Daniel, that you uh, began related to legislation passed in Florida that reverses a woman's right to access to safe abortion. But notably, like in my, it, it too followed an adept and a prolonged and effective social movement, but this one led by a very small minority of the population. You know, in the United States, less than 25% support criminalization of abortion, uh, and it's led by our country's religious rights. So there's a lesson. Social movements don't always move in the right direction for public health, and good public health advocacy doesn't always enable progressive social movements. So... Um, thanks, everyone, for sharing your news of the week. Um, and I want to uh, start with some questions for uh, each of the panelists. And just remind, we have a lot of questions to go through, um, so we'll try to keep our, our initial responses brief. Um, public health's greatest achievements are tied to social reform movements through things like housing and sanitation reforms. Um, but, Daniel, your argument uh, is that that's changed. Can you help us understand why that changed in the 20th century, and perhaps you can speak specifically about the, the, the decades that were of importance and compare them to the present day. Sure, I'm happy to do so. Um, so, you know, I think there are some, there's a number of important, public health is obviously not just one sort of thing. It's not a unitary thing in the U.S. or elsewhere, right? And so while there's a strong tradition of social reform in Western public health in particular, there's also, of course, traditions of, and I'm thinking of Dr. Farmer's legacy here, there's also traditions of colonialism, imperialism, racism, and sexual violence in public health. And all of these are part of the history, right? And so thinking about trying to sort of pick out the extent to which social reform movements have allied with public health ban, there's no question that they have and that that's been, I agree with you, you know, the most sort of powerful union and alliance in the service of improving overall population health and compressing health inequalities. So over the course of the 20th century, however, this sort of emphasis on social reform, that is just one among many traditions in U.S. and Western public health, in particular, really started to erode. And it's a complex story as to why and how this happened. Um, one of the features that has been the most interesting to me is the rise of, of medicalization. You know, and medicalization means all sorts of different things. It does absolutely mean the rise of uh, professional medicine as a field, of course, but it also... It includes the idea of health itself becoming medicalized. That health itself is really seen as a function of access to medical and healthcare services. And of course, there's no question that medical and healthcare services are very important to overall health. They absolutely are. But we also know that it's not access to health, medical services is not the prime determinant of health and its distribution in human populations. And that it's really structural determinants in which people live, work, and play that are the prime determinants of health. And so, you know, that's the, the things we really need sort of the priorities, in my view, and this is just one guy's view, but in my view, those are really the priorities. That's really what we should be focusing on. And over the course of the 20th century, uh, public health has kind of moved away from that a little bit. We still are able to do lots of good for lots of people, um, but the extent and the scope of our services and the infrastructure that we've built to really implement structural change, to really sort of ally with social reform movements and to implement social reforms and to help where we can, that's really eroded over the course of the 20th century. And this is not to sort of say that's medicine's fault. It's much more complex than that. It's a social phenomenon in the U.S. we've all participated in. And you can see medicalization elsewhere, too. It's not just in the U.S. It just happens to be extraordinarily powerful. So it's a complex story, but sort of the rise of thinking about health primarily as a function of access to health care um, has, I think, contributed you know, to the erosion of public health capacity to really partner with social reform movements to implement structural change. Um, just to follow up are there are there uh, exceptions to this sort of trend that you've observed in you know in the 20th century and early part of this century and where there have been very strong social progressive movements uh, that have emerged uh, has public health done a, a decent job trying to align with them oh boy that's a really good question <laughs> Dan I wasn't prepared for that question um um, yes, of course there are examples of this, right? I mean, the one that most readily leads to mind is, you know, uh, maternal child health, which is not my particular area of expertise within population health, but I know that MCH, maternal child health, remains sort of very powerful and significant in public health training and education 
And of course, there were women's movements in particular, led by women, organized by women, you know, really sort of focusing on maternal and child health beginning in the early 20th century, um, that I think public health was probably a little bit better to ally with, um, allied with a little bit better for complicated reasons as well, not always because um, not, not always because it was just sort of fueled by um, an interest to compress health inequalities and reduce violence. That's part of it. But political alliances political alliance are always more complicated than that, right? So that's the one that leads to mind is I think that there, there were, you know, substantial improvements in, in maternal child health. But as we, as sort of Shelley talked about in the beginning of the show, we also have seen, you know, tremendous inequalities, including, you know, terrible infant mortality statistics in the U.S., which track racial lines, right? So, you know, black mothers are, um, uh, uh, you know, m much less likely to be healthy in terms of giving birth, right? Um, and that's because of structural violence and racism in this country, make no mistake about it. So, you know, while there have been some successes, I would say, with maternal health and sort of social reform, there's obviously, you know, also been some failures, and we're accountable for that in public health. Thanks for that. Um, Celine, you've been a really uh, prominent voice on equity during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, to what extent in the many failures in the global COVID-19 pandemic response, like supporting the vulnerable from economic hardship and equitable vaccine access and ongoing access to care. Can, what, to what extent can these sort of problems be tied to public health's alignment or failure to align with social movements um, it, to drive these kinds of uh, hoped-for public health advances? I think part of the challenge here, Dan, is, um, you know, if you look at attempts say, by the current administration to provide some of these um, social safety nets, um, say, for example, uh, paid um, sick and family medical leave, um, which was one in one of the um, bills, um, but not passed. Because of the way um, we pass these things in very fragmented um, approaches, um, you may have, for example, uh, vaccination requirements passed, but not the um, uh, measures that would be necessary to make it easier for somebody to access vaccination. So you have, what we're seeing, and this is something we've seen in Kaiser Family Foundation polling, is that uh, communities of color, uh, lower income groups are very worried about um, side effects from vaccination, are less likely to seek it out in part because they are worried about missing work because they might have a side effect. And a day or two of work can be a big deal if you are barely making ends meet. Uh, if you don't have that paid uh, sick and family medical leave, and even the emergency uh, leave that was provided uh, over the course of the pandemic that has since expired, uh, only about half of people who were eligible were even aware that such uh, safety nets uh, existed. Um, so I think, you know, unfortunately, the way we approach these things, um, it's piecemeal. It, it's not transparent. People aren't even aware when there is something um, available to them. Um, and, and that remains a big challenge. Yeah. I mean, do you feel as if um, the this sort of notion of fragmentation, are there, are there, are there signals that public health as a field can, you know, really influence the defragmentation of these of these issues, or are you know, is are we doomed to, um, at least in the United States, to continue this notion that you know every uh, every sort of field argues for on behalf of itself? I think well, that remains to be seen. I think it remains to be seen um, how much public health. I think people have at least a little bit better of an understanding of what public health is. Although I think sometimes that understanding is not a positive one. It is um, in the minds of many, unfortunately, um, this nanny state that's telling you you have to wear a mask or that you have to get vaccinated. Um, and I'm still not sure that there's been a positive, productive narrative of public health um, that will lead to its better empowerment and funding. And in fact, over the course of the pandemic, and this is something that Kaiser Health News has very well documented, um, public health has been, uh, even now, still underfunded, has been under attack. Uh, we've seen the loss um, through firing, people quitting, uh, retiring, and not being replaced, the loss of a lot of public health leadership and institutional memory. And so unless we reverse those trends um, and um, empower public health authorities, um, provide the appropriate funding, I think it's going to be very difficult for public health to lead in that way. And, you know, I think that is sort of the philosophy of public health, this more holistic approach, but they need to be resourced and empowered to lead that way. 
Yeah. Um, you know, uh, turning now uh, to you, Shelley, um, you know, drawing on a couple of themes that have emerged are both the kind of historical look back at uh, successes and uh, um, this notion of um, sort of the future of public health. You know, your field is environment has been environmental health for much of your career. And some of the more successful examples of these alignments between you know, public, uh, sort of emerging public health and social movements really are around the sanitary reform movements that, you know, began in the uh, late 19th and early 20th century. Um, you know, how do you see public health playing a more active role um, as you imagine, a, you know, a different future? Well, let me let me riff a little bit off of the point Celine left off where we need to pay more attention to the challenge that we have that the public health system is under-resourced and uh, challenged in this day and age. If anything, it's the dirty secret has been exposed that uh, we do not have a public health system. We don't have uh, a connected, strengthened, uh, we don't have the laws, we don't have inadequate numbers of staff, the laboratories. I mean, it's a long list that uh, we don't have the infrastructure in place to give us a chance to become one of the healthiest nations in the world. And and there's a historical aspect to it, and I think Dan had, had touched on this. Let, let's take a look at the, what happened um, with the environmental movement. You know, go back 50 years ago, we had some terrible events going on in this country. Uh, the Cuyahoga River on fire, uh, literally in Ohio, uh, for years, they could not put out the flames because the river was so dirty. My home state of New Jersey was the brunt of every hazardous waste joke uh, that, that could be named. And if we had time, I, I would give you plenty of them. And we, we'd be rolling our eyes. But it was a reflection of the extraordinary problems uh, that we were having in this country. Those were actually, um, it should have been the authorities of public health agencies, but they didn't have the capacity. And we rebuilt in this country and created a whole new infrastructure to deal with our environmental challenges. The EPA was put in place. We created state environmental agencies. There were very clear laws that defined what chemicals would be regulated, what would be reported, how they would be reported on an annual basis. Now, fast forward here, to diseases, which are just as toxic, just as dangerous to the human uh, human body as toxic substances. But we don't have a disease tracking system in this country. It's why we were left so flat-footed and behind the eight ball when, when COVID hit. And we were not able to uh, require states to report on COVID deaths. We did not require them to report it demographically. We could not get race data. We started to see, and it was not a surprise, the extraordinary disparities that took place with COVID. But if you don't track it, you can't tell it and you can't fix it. And it's such a basic thing that we haven't actually even built for public health is where we have got to think about turning this around, turning this moment and yes, uh, highlighting the challenges that we've got in the public health system so that we can go in there and fix what is long overdue, whether it's, it's cr uh, chronic disease, COVID, climate, the disparities that we have in our health outcomes are unacceptable for a country of this wealth and capacity. Yeah, um, you know, I, I'm struck by a couple of um tensions in the discussion thus far, and Daniel, maybe you can comment on, on one of them. Uh, one is that, you know, both Celine and Shelley have sort of pointed out the, the under-resourcing of public health. And so the, the re-resourcing or the adequate resourcing of public health would certainly strengthen, you know, the availability of data and the capacity to respond and, uh, you know, the, the um, sort of leaning into the science. That, to some extent, feeds into this notion of the medicalization of public health. On the other hand, um, you know, the more public health leans into an advocacy role, aligning with social movements, the more it can be accused of being partisan, thus, you know, potentially uh, uh, sort of undermining this, you know, sense of 
uh, trust. And maybe you can comment on, 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 on that. Does it make sense for public health professionals to be, uh, to be formal advocates for social and political systems that support public health that are not directly in you know, our wheelhouse of, of, uh, of strategies? So, Dan, I'd say yes, uh, but I've actually, um, believe it or not, written something about this, right? And it has to do with the debate whether uh, over what's been referred to as a broad versus a narrow model of public health, right? The idea of a narrow model of public health is that it sort of sticks to what's been referred to as the, as the 10 essential public health services, right? Which is how public health sort of um, uh, local public health, local public health departments have been organized, or whether it takes a much broader view on things like social and structural reform, as we've been talking about. And of course, there are advantages and disadvantages to each, and both traditions are represented within the history of Western and U.S. public health in particular, right? So um, the problem is, uh, is something that, that you sort of have already touched on, and I've referred to it as sort of the ethics of health policy paradox. And what, what that is, is what we ought to do may not be what we can do politically, right? Um, and what we can do may not be what we ought to do as it turns out, right? The things that we can do may not actually be the things that we ought to do. Um, I've written in favor of a broad model of public health because I think we really don't have any other alternative but to try to make a world in which we are really sort of addressing the structural determinants of health and its distribution in populations. I think, unfortunately, too much of public health action over the course of the 20th and even into the 21st century has really sort of taken the narrow model of public health for a lot of different reasons, many of which I actually understand and have already been touched on in the power hour so far. But by doing so, you almost guarantee that the actions you're taking are not going to have a huge impact on improving overall population health and compressing inequalities because they tend to address downstream determinants of health, right? And so I understand why we're doing those things. It doesn't mean that we can't do any good by addressing downstream things because we can and we have, and I hope we can, we will, but you know, you're not going to see fundamental change on the kind of indicators that Shelley was talking about. If you don't actually sort of, um, you know, engage in collective political action. And I guess that's the other point I was raised is that public health action is fundamentally political and it's always been fundamental, fundamentally political. Right. So, you know, I'm one of those people who really doesn't like the, I, when I hear things like, you know, we shouldn't politicize public health, I've written on this too, Dan, to be honest with you. I kind of just roll my eyes because, you know, public health is fundamentally political and that's not always a good thing. I'm not saying that, that, that that's an unqualified good. It's not. It's actually extremely messy and problematic in many ways. But I just don't see any other alternative if we want to have the kind of impact that we could at least in theory have through public health action. So, Celine, maybe just turning to you on that, what um, let's sort of try to um, think in kind of practical mechanistic terms. What would it look like? to be more political in public health? What, what, you know, can you think of um, sort of examples from your own work or from, uh, you know, as you sort of touched on in your tribute to Paul Farmer at the beginning, really sort of getting to know communities, what, what would it mean for public health professionals to be more overtly political? I, I do think it's important to distinguish political from partisan. But I think, you know, when you're talking about the distribution of scarce resources, um, which is very much what public health tackles, among other issues, that is inherently political. You can't get away from that. And there are um, values that um, determine how resources are are um, allocated, what is emphasized, what is prioritized. Um, so um, whether you call it values or political, um, you know, I, I think you can't get away from that. Now, what might that look like? Um, you know, as, as Bill Fagey, who was one of the leaders of smallpox eradication, a former CDC director, has said the philosophy of public health is to protect the most vulnerable and to emphasize um, those safety nets. And so I think, you know, that is um, remains really the philosophy of public health. Um, and, and so that should be how we structure our our thinking. Um and it's not just a question of what is moral, although I would I would argue that that is what is moral, but also where are you going to have the most impact across a population? And and public health is focused on the public, on populations, uh, and so your your um, goals, your priorities are going to be different from when you are a clinician in a hospital and in, a, um, in your office examining a patient. Your priority is the patient in front of you. With public health, uh, your patient is the population. And so where are you going to have the greatest impact? It's really on focusing on 
on the most vulnerable where you're going to have the greatest um, incremental impact. Now, um, you know, what are the specific things that public health leaders can be doing in this moment? Um, I think one is being that moral voice um, of saying, look, this is what's happening to the most vulnerable. I've been really proud of many of my colleagues in this moment who have taken to the airwaves, to writing op-eds, to leading um, virtual town halls and all, you know, all, all the rest um, to, to lead um, and to care for the, the most vulnerable in this moment. Um, I think that's an important role here. I think another really important role for public health um, is to be in community. Um, and I think, you know, one of the promising um, changes over the course of the pandemic has been some revitalization of community health worker um, workforces. Um, and some of this has happened through funding from the CDC. And it's really across the country that we've seen resources put into community health workers. Um, these are people who are from community, who are working in the community, for the community. It is a very tangible um, extension of government in the community where people can see uh, services, um, can trust that something is happening for them on behalf of them. Um, and I think, you know, that is in itself, in a sense, um, political. Uh, but I, I think that's a really important place to start in terms of um, helping to re-engender trust, both in public health and in um, government. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's, it's, it's very interesting. I'm sort of struck by, um, you know, the data that's emerging around the efficacy around overcoming vaccine hesitancy being really driven by community voices and community practitioners, you know. So um, I, I, to see this component of the healthcare delivery system, community health workers being an arm of public health, I think is a really, uh, it's a really interesting observation. Um, you know, I want to sort of stay on this theme of what what it looks like for public health to be more explicitly values-based, uh, politically engaged. And I, I agree with you, Daniel, that, uh, or rather, um, Celine, that partisan is not the political is not the same as partisan. Um, but I also want to maybe think a little bit about uh, the workforce in public health. You know, I I'm a veteran. I've been in public health for for over 30 years. I, without overstating these sort of generational differences, I, I I do observe, you know, from my own career as someone who's hired, you know, sort of hundreds of people in public health. That when I sort of entered public health school, I re remember my cohort of public health students being largely uh, arriving at public health through uh, a kind of uh, an analysis of how to impact populations and how to, to align their personal political values ideology with something in the health field. And uh, over time, it became much more driven, to my mind, by folks who were really pursuing a kind of technical dimension to the work. And I don't know whether we're seeing a reversal of that in, you know, in association with some of these new uh, uh, youth-oriented or youth-driven political movements in the United States. Shelley, Shelley, what do you think? I mean, you've been involved in really trying to shape the nature of the public health workforce. What, what do you think the next generation uh, of practitioners will look like? How can we shape them in this, you know, in this direction? Well, let, let me jump in with uh, survey work that was done by De Beaumont Foundation and the uh, Association of State and Territorial Health Officials that looked at uh, what were the needs, the skills of the current public health workforce. This was a few years ago before the pandemic, but one of the issues that came up loud and clear is that it was recognized the need and the skill for engaging in the policymaking process was a critical one, yet most people lacked it. And that, uh, I suppose, has come to, to light even more so in the challenges that we've been facing uh, with our governmental health agencies in how to engender trust, how to engage in the policy process. And, and I want to echo what was said earlier, being able to be effective in policymaking it is not a bad thing. It's actually the most vital skill that we need today. And we have to build that and boost that in our next generation and our current workforce. Um, we, we have been frightened and, and, and uh, scared that it is seen as political, uh, somehow partisan, when in fact public health 
the, some of the best, uh, our, our greatest impacts in healthier world have been through public policy. It's, it, that's a critical element that we have to um, be able to effectively uh, roll up our sleeves and, and, and be part of that process. The National Academies of Sciences have called for that in public health, uh, our own surveys. And so what I'm actually starting to see in uh, the flood that has been happening at schools and programs of public health in this country um, since the, the pandemic has started, we have more people wanting to come in who want to be part of the problem solving, who get it that uh, it's not just COVID, it's chronic disease, it's the extraordinary disparities that we've got to use uh, the, the policymaking process as a way. And uh, this next gen is not seeing advocacy as a dirty word, they're seeing it as a critical skill and in fact, it's now being built into the accreditation requirements of schools of public health, that we have to be fluent in how we engage so that we're um, able to be out there, able to be known, able to be trusted, and start getting that um, ability to really make the shift and change. So uh, folks are hungry, and uh, even us you know, uh, gray hairs who've been out there doing it for a while our colleagues are saying we, we need that training now more than ever. So I, that's where we've got to go all in. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, speaking for our own organization, the Vital Strategies, you know, we work globally, uh, often alongside and by embedding staff and ministries of health, you know, trying to attach resources to critical public health uh, analysis and aims. And we have found ourselves this growing demand internationally for policy development engagement. You know, what are the uh, understanding how to really develop uh, strong policies, make the uh, evidence um, uh, for for them, but also the softer skills, the, the advocacy skills. And this is where, uh, at least, you know, speaking about sort of the earlier generation of public health trainees in the United States and even globally, I, I agree. I think this is not, it's not been there, but it's nice to hear that it's, uh, that it's growing. Celine, do you, you know, sort of thinking about this kind of global theme, um, do you see examples uh, globally where this alignment of sort of public health, social movements, advocacy, you know, explicit uh, attention to, you know, the vulnerable and to uh, eliminating disparities, not just in outcomes, but in risk factors? Do you, do you see good examples globally where this is happening? I think certainly, um, you know, in the context of HIV, um, I have seen that kind of advocacy in the field on the ground. Um, and I think, you know, thinking back on my early years working in uh, places like South Africa around 2000, where there was this discussion of, of does HIV even cause AIDS? Um, so you had this, you know, in some ways, um, very similar moment to what we're experiencing right now of this intertwining of what I would say are political interests with disinformation, with public health. Um, but I think the uh, recognition in that context that people have a right to health, which is not a right that is recognized here in the United States, uh, but in South Africa is, and they have a right to at least some basic level of health care. Um, I think it's part of, of, of that kind of intertwining of, of um, understanding. Um, and I think some of the greatest advocates uh, for global vaccine equity right now are voices from the global South, um, who unfortunately are not necessarily in the position, um, if you look at where are the major producers of vaccine right now, Pfizer and, and Moderna, they're in um, the developed world. And the levers of power to uh, force things like uh, sharing of vaccine technology to make that available to the global south uh, for regional self-sufficiency. Um, there's only so much that um, those advocates are able to do. But I think some of the most powerful voices uh, in highlighting these inequities are coming um, from that world. And I think in some ways... Um, when your life is so, um, when, when life is so precarious, um, and where democracy, um, where it exists is much, uh, newer, 
um, people have a better understanding of how these things uh, relate. I think some of the most sophisticated thinking I've heard, frankly, um, on the intersection of, of um, uh, culture and politics and health has been um, in places like West Africa, where I was working during Ebola, and hearing even just lay people um, talk about our politics in the U.S. and how that was influencing what was happening on the ground for them. Um, you know, I think there's just a, a greater awareness um, of how these things relate. Thanks. Uh, you know, I, I, um, I'm struck by maybe the sort of the converse of what you're describing. Um, so let's sort of take the example of, you know, clearly global trends in the uh, diminution of uh, of democracies in you know in in many countries that had felt more secure you know democratically um, and the overt suppression of uh, mass movements you know I'm trying to you know harken back to this notion of you know it's been mass movements aligned with uh, public health that have really influenced public health outcomes and where mass movements are being suppressed you know can uh, and I'll open this up to, to any and all of you, um, you know, where do you see uh, public health, um, where do you see, you know, those of us in public health making a difference uh, amidst this kind of suppression effort uh, for, uh, for, for mobilization? Well, one thing I'd like to, say, you know, say on, on the social movement question is, um, if you look at how social movements rose, sort of the beginnings of the progressive era in the United States, um, what was happening at that time, um, you had very strong moral voices, as we do today. Um, at that time, it was around issues like child labor and housing. And, and um, you know, today it's about um, global vaccine equity and vulnerable populations. But I think that is uh, one of the sparks of what starts a, a um, social movement. I think having trust in um, institutions and in one another uh, is another really important piece here. And I, I do think, again, that community health worker um, initiative that we're seeing across the country could be another spark that helps to start to build a social movement. But I think thirdly, um, we have to understand um, uh, the challenge of collective action. And um, I recently went back and reread Menser Olson's The Logic of Collective Action on this issue. And I think fundamentally, um, very often, policy is driven by a very small number of people who are highly motivated and have the time and energy and resources um, to have influence. And a lot of us are just getting by, barely treading water um, with all of the different things we have that we're juggling in life. Um, and really, the only way to sort of democratize some of that is um, to make it easier for people to participate. And uh, I was really, I was recently talking to a friend and colleague of mine, Gary Slutkin, who's spent much of his career working on gun violence. And you know, I mentioned this or said, you know, said something about this to him and he said, well, you, you have to pay people. You know, that's, you know, kind of what community health workers are in a sense is they're a paid workforce of people who are the foundation for a social movement. But you have to enable them um, to participate. And I think, um, you know, until we um, facilitate that, it will be an activity of the elite um, to be speaking out, to to be calling attention to these issues. Um, and so I really hope that um, perhaps in this moment that's changing. Daniel, from your historian perspective? I'm not sure I have a whole lot of wisdom to, to sort of um, offer on this one. N not, not because I don't think it's an important question, Dan. I think it's a critically important question. But, you know, I'm not sure I have you know that that it's fair to say at least in the history of, of u.s public health i'm not sure global public health might be a little bit different but in the history of u.s public health i'm not sure it's fair to say that you know there are tons of examples of where public health leaders have been out in front of social reform movements sometimes there are have been important alliances as i think we alluded to earlier and that's great those partnerships and and, and collaborations and alliances become important but uh, but for a variety of reasons i'm not sure um that that 
organized public health has really been at the forefront of sort of social reform movements, which doesn't mean they couldn't be. I'm not opposed to it at all, actually. In fact, I'm strongly in favor of it. I just, I don't know that I have a lot of wisdom as to, as to sort of the, the mechanics of how that happens. I mean, I think Celine's point is obviously extremely well taken that it does, you know, that these kinds of sort of policy processes can become uh, often are sort of the, the province of the elite, right? And I think that's part of the problem. There's a lot of efforts involved in community-based and community-oriented policymaking, and sometimes that works better than others. You know, the expression is all public health is local, right, including global public health, and right? And so, you know, there are sort of local movements where you can get sort of partnerships between important public health programs, public health advocacy groups, and community groups. And there are, I think, that, you know, examples of ways in which that those things can be successful on the local level, you know, I'm not sure how that sort of translates upwards to state and national and let alone sort of global health policy. But those kinds of things are a little bit beyond the scope of my particular expertise. So I'm sort of eager to hear what Shelley has to say about this. Well, uh, let me let me offer a few thoughts. I think we have seen, whether it's from the environmental movement, where it is a combination of sentinel events that bust through and get the kind of attention and people saying, we ain't going to take it no more, in combination with a healthy, robust advocacy community that in the public health arena, I think we, uh, for most of our field, it's in an infancy state. We have uh, a lot of issue-specific groups, but we, um, we don't have the kind of political muscle that you have seen on climate change or in the LGBTQ community. But those also took time to grow and uh, uh, germinate around sentinel events that are a combination of uh, a, a timeliness, a, a public outrage, sophisticated organizations. Yes, um, there's investments by elite of money and connections, relationships with those in policymaking positions who could champion and move issues. But that's what we have to start thinking about more concretely and building. And are there ways that we can knit together uh, our diffuse public health uh, groups? The, we, we have some very strong uh, gun violence organizations. They've been hampered for a long time by the lack of a public health infrastructure that could even track uh, basics on gun violence um, statistics because CDC was held back from that. We go um, uh, environmental. Uh, Dan, you talked about how much of your career was on building those environmental health tracking capacity uh, and how that happened in the engagement allowed for better trust, better information to the public, better uh, transparency, and better action. And so we're at a, I feel like the uh, public health field is at the very early stages of the potential to really be a player and to not just be a bully pulpit, but actually be able to um, start to convert this sentinel moment, start to strengthen some of the organizations that are out there, and to be more political. And I, again, not partisan, but to to have and engage in the policymaking process so that we can actually strengthen our capacity to, to create those healthier environments for everyone. It just, it's, um, it is time. It's just time. We're coming up on the close of our time. I, 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 I would just invite um, uh, Daniel and Celine to also uh, maybe offer some uh, closing remarks on this discussion and, perhaps point our listeners to, um, you know, any additional resources you really recommend for, uh, you know, for reading or for, uh, for viewing around these topics? Yeah, sure. Um, so in terms of uh, another reading or other readings, I would recommend um, the work of Robert Putnam, who wrote uh, Bowling Alone, and then with um, Shailene Romney-Garrett wrote The Upswing. Um, the three of us actually co-authored an op-ed in Time recently, um, entitled How Can America, uh, or sorry, How America Can Rebuild the Community Bonds It Needs to Face the Next Pandemic. And I think um, at the root of a lot of our problems are the balance between the individual um, and um, community, and that there have been sort of parallels between um, what we've seen with social movements, 
with public health, and um, those track very closely with the balance between the individual and community, um, whether that balance is healthy or, or in the current moment has gone to a very far extreme of individualism. Um, and I do think that, um, you know, looking at how we can rebuild a sense of community is going to be really important to rebuilding public health. Thanks for that. Uh, Daniel? Um, yeah, just in terms of uh, sort of some closing thoughts. I mean, I, I sort of think it's it's interesting just looking at the title of the, the power here. what if public health fueled social reform movements. You know, I think it's important because I don't think that there's a huge history of that. There is a history in which public health has allied and partnered with different kinds of social reform movements, but actually fueling them themselves, I think, would be relatively novel. I'm not, I don't want to say it's never happened before, but I, I wouldn't say that it's extraordinarily common, at least in the history of U.S. public health. So, you know, I think that that's one of the messages going forward is, to sort of Shelley's point is not just what if, you know, public health sort of participated in social reform movements, but what if it took, you know, what if its workforce took a hugely active role in sort of, you know, shaping um, policymaking processes? I think that would be quite interesting in an interest, in the interest of sort of changing laws and policies, so, you know, that imp impact sort of structural determinants of health, right? So in terms of whose work would I sort of recommend going forward? I mean, you know, a, a colleague and a collaborator whose work that I'm sort of heavily engaged with right now is Paula Lance. Um, and Paula um, is um, was at University of Michigan for a long time, and she works a lot on. She's a social epidemiologist by training, but she she has a huge foot in policy and has been working in trying to bridge the gap between what the social epidemiologic evidence tells us in terms of structural violence and 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 the kinds of public policies she makes, with a particular emphasis on the medicalization that I talked about earlier. A lot of my thinking about medicalization has been heavily shaped by Dr. Lance. And so she's got a lot of, I think, very accessible work on this. And so I'd recommend that to anybody. Uh, terrific. And Shelley, you get the last word on this. So the reading I'd suggest is uh, a, a recent book by Tony Eiden and Harry Snyder um, that is, I have to go look up the title because as, as we were speaking here, it just seems to be kind of the right thing at the right time, but it's um, advocacy for public health policy change and an urgent imperative. And it's uh, put out by APHA Press, uh, really recognizing what we've been talking about, that we really need to start making this part of our standard operating practice, that where we have, um, as Dan was noted, you know, past decades, uh, focus more on a, 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 a medicalization approach to populations. The reality is the research and data is showing that it's the policy environment that we create that can lend, as you address everything from structural racism uh, to uh, better opportunities for all, that is policy that is going to be some of our uh, best opportunities for creating better health. And so um, that that thinking of how we all can be advocates and what are the different roles and ways that we can partake in that, depending on where we are. Um, that book is a good place to start. Thank you. And uh, thank you to all of you, our panelists, Celine Gounder, Shelley Hearn, and Daniel Goldberg, for really a, a wonderful and uh, thought-provoking discussions. And thank you all for joining as listeners. Um, I'm just going to close by highlighting where we're going with this uh, this forum. Uh, if you enjoyed the conversation and want to share it, look for the Public Health Power Hour podcast, as I said, on um, all of the uh, podcasting platforms. And our next Power Hour uh, will mark Women's History Month and International Women's Day with a series of discussions centered on women's health. And for the first show on March 3rd, we're asking, what if women's health in Africa centered on gender equity? And our fantastic host will be Deborah Charles, Senior Managing Editor at DevEx, and Deborah will be joined by Dr. Marianne Etibet, who's the Executive Director at Merck for Mothers, by Dr. Onikepe Owalabi, uh, our Program Director here at Vital Strategies uh, for our Data-Driven Policy Initiative to Improve Women's Health, and by Dr. Justine uh, Bukenya, Medical Doctor and a Lecturer uh, in the Department of Community Health and Behavioral Sciences at McCary University. So with that, I thank you all for joining, and we look forward to uh, having you join us the next time. Thanks, everyone. 
Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Public Health Power Hour. We hold these live conversations several times a month on Twitter Spaces. Follow us at VitalStrat on Twitter to join the conversation in real time. We'd love to see you there. To learn more about how Vital Strategies is reimagining public health, go to www.vitalstrategies.org. I'm Steve Hamill with Vital Strategies. Join us next time on the Public Health Power Hour.